This is an ABC podcast. This is RN Summer, and I'm Meredith Lake with Soul Search. It's great to have your company as we launch into a summer highlight series featuring our greatest hits, or at least our most memorable moments from 2019. And you'll never guess who's first up a tattooed, weightlifting celebrity priest. Father Rob Gallia. These days, he's a minister in regional Victoria, but it was a painful path to travelling the world singing holy pop. 13, I ran away from home. I ended up um, addicted to a lot of things by the time I was 14. It started with smoking and, and drinking, eventually ended up in party drugs and harder drugs after that. And then I ended up in a place of where I would steal, lie, and I started hanging out with these violent guys, this, this gang. So by the time I was 16, I was beating people up for the sake of it. More than once, Rob Gallia has found himself a long way from home. In January, he was in Panama singing at Catholic World Youth Day in front of a huge audience, including the Pope. He performed the English version of the official World Youth Day song, Here I Am, the Servant of the Lord, as well as a composition of his own, I Surrender to You. It must have been surreal. And I had to ask Father Rob, how do you decide what to play for the Pope? <laughs> well, I suppose, um, first of all, it was a really scary experience because there, there was the Pope there and you're singing for the Pope, but there's also 1.4 million people. It's difficult to fathom, you know, like to think 1.4 million people in front of you, you cannot see that population. You just see the few, um, maybe a couple of thousands of people that are right in front of you, but then the horizon keeps going and keeps going. And so you know that any mistake that you make, any bum note or anything was, is going to have quite a ripple effect. So it is terrifying. But how do you know which songs to choose? The Panama World Youth Day office called me and said, Father Rob, we'd love you to, to sing for the Holy Father. And then they submitted a couple of songs which they thought would be good for the occasion. But um, I didn't sing any of those that they submitted because and then I submitted another two and they uh, were happy to consider those. And then um, we chose one, the song I Surrender to You. You can melt the hardest heart You can warm the coldest light I watched the YouTube video of that performance. It is quite incredible. Um, You're kneeling down, eyes closed, just you and a guitar. Mm. It's also a a really, it's a ballad, isn't it? It's an acoustic ballad, which is really different to the more electronic pop sound of your new album. And we just heard the title track there, Coming Home. Uh, Father Rob, what are you coming home to? Well, I've been ordained a Catholic priest now for about eight years, eight years. And when you begin the journey, you're full of enthusiasm. It's like a honeymoon, you know, like everything is going well. Your relationship with God is fantastic with people. But then reality starts to kick in. The reality of the work, the reality of life, but the reality of also your humanity and the feeling that sometimes that you cannot do what you're called to do. And so this is the realization where I came to this album. This album is about coming back home to 
what it is all about, what my vocation is all about, and what the church is all about. And they're also written in the context of all the abuse that has happened in the church because it has affected the world, but also has affected me, my vocation, my thoughts on the priesthood. And so it's about coming back home to the heart and my relationship with Jesus and my love for people to bring them to this relationship with Jesus. In the midst of disillusionment, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. When I was a seminarian, I had never even heard of the abuse or that anyone could possibly do something like that. And then then you come to this place and you start to realize, wait, hold on, there's something absolutely terribly wrong here. And I start to question my own vocation. And, you know, you're in the seminary and you're moving forward and you're enthusiastic. And then you start to realize that you're right in the middle of all this mess. And again, I have a choice either to say, no, I don't want any part of this or else, no, hey, hold on. What is all of this? What is this church about? It's moved away from what it was meant to be, but at its heart, at its core, it's still an instrument of God's love. It is still the body of Christ. It's fascinating that you express that really profound personal journey with an electronic pop album, (laughs) collaborating with Eurovision stars like Ira Losco. Who's your main audience that you're telling this story of coming home to? Well, look, when I wrote this album, I, I changed my style. So usually all my other albums are acoustic. They're relaxed, they're laid back. And then I thought, first of all, this is not what I'm listening to. It's not where I am. And so I had to reconcile um, where I am at musically with what I have to say. And it, it is a journey. It's, too, it's actually a risk. This album is the biggest risk I've ever had to take because the Christian audience generally doesn't listen to this type of music yet. Um, who is my audience? Um, a lot of young people, a lot of young adults. Um, and I'm tr- a lot of my songs are written. I'm hoping to get onto radio and get airplay in places that are not necessarily Christian. I need and I want to reach out further and wider. I guess it was a similar idea that prompted you to audition for The X Factor, the mm. reality music show back in 2015. You went on stage in a clerical collar. That's um, right. Why did you do that? Well, because, um, first of all, it was a real challenge because I'm an introvert, okay? So I don't want to be known as a pop star. So even though I spend my life on the stage, but the attention is always pointed towards something bigger, something greater than myself. And when you're on a television show like The X Factor, all the attention's on you. And so the reason I wore a collar, again, this is a a time where the abuse was all out. I just wanted to give a different impression that I am a priest at the end of the day. So first I'm a Christian. That's my most important thing. And then uh, after that, I'm a priest and I get to serve God as a priest. And then only after that, then I'm a musician. So I thought I'd just use this opportunity to put things into context of who I was and who I am. I used to look into my father's eyes In a happy home I was a king, I had a gold throne Those days are gone The memories on the wall Father Rob Gallia auditioning for the reality music show X Factor in 2015. And it's a far cry from his childhood when he showed little interest in either music or Catholicism.
Well, I was brought up in Malta. In it's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and um, I think Malta is has two things which um, maybe stand out. The first thing is that it's 98% Catholic, so there's religion everywhere. 365 churches in an island which is about 12 kilometers by about 17 kilometers. But also, it's a, a very big party place. Beautiful beaches, people coming from all around the world to party. The drinking age in Malta was 16 as I was growing up, so you can imagine a lot of young tourists coming over to Malta. But, um, and this is the place where I was brought up and uh, having strict parents, I started to realize, you know, even at the age of 14, 13, I ran away from home. I ended up um, addicted to a lot of things by the time I was 14. It started with smoking and, and drinking, eventually ended up in party drugs and harder drugs after that. And then I ended up in a place of where I would steal, lie, and I started hanging out with these violent guys, this, this gang. So by the time I was 16, I was pretty messed up. I was a good guy. Deep down, I wanted to care for people. You know, one of my best friends as I was growing up was a, a, a young man with muscular dystrophy. And I was his carer. I won a prize in my early years at high school for being the most altruistic, the kindest student in the school. And then coming to a place now when I'm 16 and I'm beating people up for the sake of it with a group of 10 people with pack for no reason. Was that your lowest point? Was there a situation or a moment where you just realised this is not how I thought things would go? Well, there were a couple of moments that brought me to that. I remember after beating this 30-year-old up, so for no reason, simply the reason was I wanted his cap. He had a snapback and I wanted it. And so a group of us just jumped on this guy and pretty much left him for dead. And so I go home that night and I'm thinking, what have I become? You know why? I didn't want to be violent. I didn't want to hurt people. And I started to worry about this 30-year-old. Did he have kids? Did he have a wife? I didn't know anything. And so I I just um, started to panic. But the next week I went out and I continued fighting. But one day the tables turned and I I was sitting in a nightclub, 16 years old, legally. And a group of friends just come in basically to attack me because I had said a lie about one of the gang members. And I remember running home, locking myself in my room for eight weeks, didn't leave my room and ended up in this place where I was suicidal, where I was lost um, and I didn't want to live anymore. I was too terrified to live. I was terrified to die, but I was terrified to live also because I didn't have a relationship with my parents. I didn't have a relationship with friends. I didn't have anyone. And so from that place, still dealing with my demons of addiction, I'm just in this place of loneliness. And that's where I reached the end of myself. And I thought, nah, I need to do something about this. I sought with all of my heart a way to get out. Can you tell me more about how that breakthrough happened? How did it come about? Well, look, in my book, I, I talk about my conversion story. And, and actually, now this book is being made into a, a movie, a Hollywood movie. And this is, it's an exciting time. And this is what I want to do. At the end of the day, I want to give this message of hope. I believe me, if this can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Um, because I was really at my worst uh, And so I think there are a couple of things that happened that helped me out of my darkness. One was I had parents and my mom in particular who would pray for me. You know, in my book I write of a moment where I'm locked in my room and on my knees in in the corner of my bed, banging my head against the wall, just hoping to hit it hard enough to, to pass out. I used to do this regularly and my mom would knock at the door, my dad would knock at the door and say, hey, are you okay? Let us in. And I'd just swear at them, just leave me alone. When I gave them this chapter to read, I said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to publish this in the book. This is how I remember it. 
And so they read the chapter, and when they called me back, they said, there's, there's something you left out, Rob. There's something there which you don't know. She said, we used to knock at your door, and we used to hear you in pain. She said, but when you used to swear at us and ask us to leave, she said, we never left. We would be outside your room on our knees praying together, just praying and hoping that you would get out of your darkness. And so I believe one prayer, two, having the support of a family that persevered, even though things seemed to be getting worse. And then eventually coming to this place of um, a youth group where um, I, I made a decision. I said, look, I'm either going to end my life or I'm going to go out. And the only out was um, going to this Christian youth group. And I went there and I hated it. But I found a sense of community. I found people who cared about me. I found people who were interested in me. I found people who were patient with me. And so there I found that sense of community. And then the fourth thing, which is my relationship with Jesus. You write about, in terms of meeting Jesus, going into your room and setting up a chair in front mm. of you, imagining Jesus sitting in it and praying. Why, why that? Why was that the way you sought to meet him yourself? Well, it was after going to a youth group, um, one of the youth groups, and there was this medical doctor who started to preach, and he said, Jesus is someone you can have a relationship with. Now, for me, Jesus was someone so distant, someone who didn't care about me. How could he care about me and allow me to go through all that suffering? How could it be a God of love and, uh, and allow me to go through all that pain? And so I had my questions, you know. But this guy started to talk about Jesus as though he knew him, as though he had a conversation with him that morning, a coffee with him that morning. And I remember going home, just locking myself in my room and just saying, I want to have a coffee with Jesus. You know, I want to know Jesus like he does. And so I just sat down on a chair and I just, in, in my imagination, I, saw, I put another chair there and I said, Jesus, sit down. If you're real, I want to talk to you. And I did this for weeks. And I would speak to this empty chair and it was awkward. But one day, as I continued to do this, and I wasn't high on drugs at that moment, I just encountered this, this feeling of love, this feeling of acceptance, you know, and I just sensed that there was someone there. And mm. something shifted. Yes, something did shift because I was desperate to be loved. And this is the, the thing that we all have. We, we, we're desperate to, to be loved and to be liked and to be accepted. And so I saw an image of a person in this chair. And again, I, I wouldn't be able to describe this image. I just sensed there was someone there. But this, this presence, or whatever you call it, I just felt it was an accepting, it was a loving presence. And because I, I, I became aware of my darkness at that moment. I became aware of my addictions, my lies, and my violence. And, but I was confronted with this presence of love. And... But I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel shame. I felt accepted in spite of my darkness. And I remember just, this was all in a split second. It wasn't a, I, I wouldn't even have seen it as some kind of mystical experience. It was so ordinary at the time. I just, it was just a sense of being loved. And I fell to my knees and I, I cried for two hours, like to the point where I was holding a pillow to my face because I was scared my parents would come into the room and thinking I was, had gone crazy. But I just this sense of love and this sense of, of acceptance was so great that my prayer towards the end of the crying was like, God, please stop because my heart is going to explode. But I got up from those hours of crying and I remember thinking, this is going to be my life. I'm going to tell people about this love because if God can do it through my darkness, then he can do it with, with anyone. And so I haven't stopped. And this was 20 years ago. It's interesting hearing you talking about what compels you 
if you like, the, the love that compels you. I interviewed some writers recently who talked about their own conversions as very difficult things. They didn't want to be Christians. And if they didn't have to be, they wouldn't be. But mm. they felt compelled by what they'd come to know about Jesus and kind of came kicking and screaming almost to yeah. faith. Was there any part of you that protested this experience or this conversion and its implications for your life? Yes, because I was scared what I had to give up. <laughs> I had seen something, I'd experienced. So a lot of people come from an understanding to faith. I, I came from like a heart and faith and uh, an experience to understanding. But once I started to understand, I started to realize the cost, the cost of following God, the cost of being a Christian. And the cost is, is giving up those uh, sins, so to speak, giving up things that were holding me back and holding my dignity back, G giving things up um, that, that I thought, well, like, for example, I thought I had had to give up my music. You know, I thought I had to give up my... My, my traveling, I, I thought I had to give up so many things, but I was wrong. But I think I needed, I needed to come to that place of total surrender, that whatever it takes moment. And that was so hard, so hard to say, look, God, I want to follow you. Even if I never sing another song again, even if I never get on, I never travel again, even, even when I started to consider the priesthood, even if I never get married, you know, or I never have a family, I will choose to follow you, whatever it takes. And that is so hard to come to that moment of surrender. And just because you come to that moment of surrender once, it doesn't mean that you've done it because you have to do it a thousand times a day. Hence a song like I Surrender to You. That's mm. kind of core to the spirituality you're describing. But can you tell me more about the role that music had in your life through these kind of very tumultuous religious experiences? When did you start playing music in a serious way? Well, it all started, you see the, that young man that I said I used to look after who had muscular dystrophy. When he was 23 years old, he, he died. And um, I had started playing the guitar in church. And I, 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 it wasn't anything extraordinary. And I, every now and then I used to write a song, but nothing special. But one day um, I got the news that Daniel died. And I went to see his body there, and I, I just, as I stood over his body, I, I cried, and I just went to my car. I was 18 years old then, and I, I just wrote this song, this song uh, about Daniel. These tears we cry this day, this hour. And the next day, I went back to his parents. I went back to his house. Um, the funeral hadn't happened yet, and I sang it for his parents. And his parents both asked me, can you please sing this at the funeral? And I sang it at the funeral. And then eventually they asked me to record the song. And from there that became, at the time, Malta's best-selling single because we released it as a single. So run to Jesus, Danny boy. He waits for you expectantly. Walk into his open arms. And then from there I got signed with a, a record label in the United Kingdom. My music started to get distributed through Christian radio stations and eventually this got the attention of, of Sony in 2008. And in 2008 I, I worked with Guy Sebastian and some others on a few projects um, for World Youth Day to sing for the Pope. So I've sung for the Pope twice, so th this was the first time. And I, I got to record my album um, and then it sort of started to take over. And then eventually <laughs> I got signed with a, a record label in the United States. And that's where I'm at at the moment. 
you were also working hard as a university student through this period too, weren't you? You mm. finished school, I think you got a girlfriend and went on to further study. What yes. did you do at university? Well, I studied commerce. I started studying thinking that I was going to take over my dad's business. My dad has a group of companies and I thought, no, this is what I want to do. And I love business. I love entrepreneurship. I, I, st I started studying and um, as I was going through university, I also had a girlfriend for four years. We're settled. Like, I'm really happy. Thinking of marriage, thought of I was going to take over the business. And I was still touring. I was still playing music every now and then. Um, I, one day I was giving a concert in Italy. And as I was giving this concert, this priest walked into the stadium and he was just, I saw him just walking in with a group of young people. And I remember looking at this priest and thinking, whoa, this guy is so cool, you know. And I remember thinking also, I don't want to be a priest, but if I'll be anything like this guy, I'll consider being a priest. And it was the first thought that came into my mind was thinking like, hey, maybe I could be a priest. And eventually I started to think about this and I had to sit down with my girlfriend about six months after to confess to her that I was thinking about the priesthood. So that means you cannot get married. That means you take a vow of celibacy. So how did that go? <laughs> well, it, was, it was hard. And it was one of the scary moments in my life where I had to tell someone I loved that, hey, we might not be together. And so um, she cried, I cried, and eventually we decided to end the relationship. And um, uh, look, we were still really close friends. Um, she got married two years ago and asked me to be the celebrant at her wedding. And it was just sort of, we still, rem we still catch up. And it was a really hard thing to do, but it wasn't, it wasn't ugly. And then eventually I ended up going into the seminary and I didn't look back. And I, I, I love being a priest. Honestly, I know it's hard, it's difficult, there's a lot of sacrifices, but if I, I think if I were a priest, if I had a thousand lifetimes, I, I'd want to choose to be a priest in each one because it is a beautiful vocation. It was while you were in seminary in Malta that you made your first trip to Australia and to Bendigo, I believe, mm. on a kind of gap year. Can you tell me about that? What was that year of your life about? Well, it was actually my second time in Australia because I had come um, before just on a tour with a, with a friend of mine who was a preacher. That doctor, you remember, that I talked about, that he talked about Jesus and um, he started to speak about Jesus as though he had a coffee with him that morning. Uh, we became friends and he used to go around the world preaching and I, I went with him. And eventually I entered the seminary and I had fallen in love with Australia when I had visited here the first time. I had planned to take a gap year in the middle of the seminary and I called a local bishop here in Bendigo who was a Maltese bishop. And I said, hey, um, Bishop Joe, would you have a place for me in your diocese just to spend a gap year? And he responded immediately and he said yes. And a week later I was with my bags packed and he was waiting for me at the airport, drove me to Bendigo and I spent a year there. And it was, it, it was an amazing year and was experiencing the church in a different way because the church was an outward church, like there weren't people within the church necessarily, um, not like Malta where we'd have 11 masses in one parish and there's no seating, no, no place to sit down, while Australia it's different. And so I had to start reaching out, going into schools, going to pubs, going into clubs and I started to realize, man, this is, this is me. This is me. This is what I love to do. And then the bishop asked me to stay on. And um, I said no at first because I was scared to leave my family, which are all in Malta. 
but went home to talk to my family and eventually decided to come back. And this was 13 years ago. And you've been in parish work in regional Victoria ever since then? Yes. So I work in a parish sort of part-time, and, but, I, but I travel. So I'm, I work around the world in a non-for-profit organisation which I started some time ago. And now I'm on a plane about 150 times a year. So I'm actually at the airport more than I am in my, my parish. But um, yeah, I do work in a parish a few days a week. Um, I run an office of sort of, we work for global evangelization, school curriculum, anything. We, use, we write music for EDM, for nightclubs, anything, podcasts, whatever it takes to, to give this message of hope to people. On RN, this is Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake, speaking with the celebrity singing priest, Father Rob Gallia. And there have been some dark times for him. And if this story is raising issues for you, remember you can call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. Now, Father Rob's own transformation has been one of body as well as soul. And that was obvious even before he Instagrammed a pic with the hashtag FlexForJesus. Well, um, I got my first tattoo um, maybe on my 30th birthday. Um, I had been thinking about it for maybe 15 years and I thought, no, I'm just going to do it. It was a hidden tattoo. Nobody knew about it. Um, And then eventually I got a, a second tattoo. And I remember doing an interview in in Malta, which was an interview about one of my songs because I had just released a song with a big pop star in Malta, with Ira Losco. And this interview was supposed to be about her and about working with her, but one of the journalists spotted my tattoo and it was on the front of every newspaper in Malta. Um, And so people somehow can't get used to the fact that a priest would have tattoos. But I I love having tattoos because it's a reminder of of my mission and also maintenance. So on one arm, for example, I have the, the word forgiven, which is a reminder to me that I need God's mercy over and over and over again. And then on another arm, I have a a scripture verse which talks about my mission. It says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they know to call upon the name of the Lord if you do not tell them? So that's my mission. From the New Testament letter of Romans. That's right. Romans 10.13, I think, or 13.10, one of them. Not the verse from Leviticus that prohibits (laughs) tattooing. No, no. Often a lot of people quote that and they say, but Leviticus says no tattoos. But the verse before also says, do not shave the sides of your hair. And it also says, do do not eat meat. And it says so many things, but we still do it as Christians. So why do we obey one and not the other? I think it's about context. eh? It's about labeling yourself for false gods, which is what they were talking about in, in Leviticus. We need a more sophisticated hermeneutic than just straight out literalism, perhaps. Absolutely, especially, yes, especially when it comes to the laws, okay? Like, I mean, why were the laws written in what context? So every, they would criticize someone having a tattoo, but why haven't they criticized someone who has a, like a a fresh fade on, on the side of their head, you know? Well, you've also, I think, started spending a bit of time at the gym. Is that true? And I'm not sure what I think about a hashtag like, Flex for Jesus. <laughs> but but how, how is that related to your spirituality too? Yeah, well, for, let's start with the hashtag. So I, I like to, to 
pinch, like to to poke, <laughs> sure. to see what people's reaction would be. Okay, and it's it's, it's more like a, a joke to see because sometimes we tend to be so serious. It just oh my goodness, and um, we get offended by everything. Um, so that's why I I sometimes put hashtags and I say things maybe that I shouldn't. But um, one of the reasons I started training was to deal. You see, as a teenager, I suffered from depression and anxiety, and I was suicidal. Um, but the depression um, didn't go away. I still suffer from anxiety. I still suffer from depression, and there are moments where I find it really hard to cope. And so I've set up pillars in my life that I'm passionate about, things that keep me standing, keep me strong, and keep me moving forward. And one of those pillars is my exercise. Um, the, my my personality, which comes from a background of addiction, and I need to give my hundred percent or nothing at all. That's the way I work. And so I, when I train, I train the hardest I can train. I train better than anyone that can train. It's not a sense of pride, but it's a sense of determination, because I, I know it's either that or the alternative, which is not not good for me. There's a an interesting, I guess, role of the body in the spiritual life, though, too, isn't there? Because there are traditions of of thought that would look down on the cultivation of the body as a spiritual practice. What yeah. what does it mean for you to maintain your exercise is it just a health thing or is there a spiritual idea here too well i'd say two things first of all the things that people who are against are usually um there's the idea of dualism like the spirit is good but the body is bad but that's not what jesus showed us because jesus um, assumed a body he came in a body and he he didn't put down the body it it was um the body was something good something beautiful so we we are to look after the temple which is our body but at the same time, we are to discipline the body because the body is, is not king, okay? It, it's the, the mind and the heart and the spirit that are king. So I think that exercise helps in a, in a sense of asceticism. It helps discipline. Even though I don't feel like training, even though I don't feel like lifting weights, even though I'm tired, I will work hard and I will not let my body tell me when to stop. Of course, you look after your body in the sense, um, if you're exhausted, you rest and things like that, but not laziness. So yes, um, it is mind over matter. And I believe that that helps also in the discipline of prayer. It helps in the discipline on every part of a, of a person's life if they can uh, master their body. Well, if exercise is one pillar, Father Rob, perhaps music is another one. Can you tell me what role playing music has in your personal life and religious experience? Well, music allows me to express the inexpressible. Um, And this is how the spiritual walk is. We can try and um, rationalize it. We can try and speak. We can try and reason it. But at the end of the day, even St. Paul says that we, we speak in groans that, that the, only the Spirit can understand. And I believe that's also music. Music is a way of um, expressing and lifting our hearts to a God or crying out to a God in, in ways that words cannot express through lyric and through music. So music has helped me a lot in my emotional and my spiritual journey. But also it allows me to, to relate to God and to communicate with others. So, for example, music for me is an, a powerful instrument in my evangelization work. It somehow connects people with God in a way that they cannot receive through words and through preaching. Um, so art and, and music has the power to transcend the mind and go straight to the heart um, and, and to the soul. That's where God is. Well, your music has already reached hundreds of thousands of people, potentially millions, 
With this new album, Father Rob, what's the key message, I guess, you're hoping to communicate to the heart? Well, at the heart of this message is that we walk and we journey with God. We have this, maybe this relationship with God and with others, but at the end of the day, we fall short. We, we run away. We choose ourselves over others, choose ourselves over God. And it's, it's, it's an album of hope that be patient, okay? Let's journey back. Let's come home recognizing that God waits like the prodigal father, you know? The, there's a, we call him the prodigal son, but it's the more spendthrift is the father in his life, his generosity running towards the, the, the son. And this is the way God is with us. But we need to have the courage to pray again, to fall in love with God again, and to let God love us. There's a psalm, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The word be still, iskot, is the Semitic word, which literally means just shut up, iskot, shut up, and let God catch you, let God pursue you. All we just need to do is stop, and that's how we come home to God. Father Rob Gallia a millennial Catholic priest based in Bendigo, Victoria. And incredibly, his life story may be headed for the Hollywood big screen. Closer to home, look out for him on ABC TV in 2020 as Compass takes a look at this tattooed singing priest. Rob Gallia's latest album, by the way, is called Coming Home, and you'll find all the details of that on the Soul Search website, where you can also catch up on any of our stories that you might have missed during the year. My name's Meredith Lake, and this is Soul Search on RN Summer. And you know, whenever religion meets contemporary music, you can bet on running into RN's Jeff Wood. Jeff, it's great to see you. I believe you've known Father Rob for a little while. Yes, hi, Meredith. I did meet Father Rob for the first time way back in 2011. Uh, He'd only recently been ordained, and even then a typical weekend for him would be maybe celebrating Mass, perhaps baptising some children, and then going and performing. So He was a singer already. He was a singer already. By that stage, he had already put out, I believe, four albums. He was a star on the rise. Even I could see that. Um, Quite an unusual character, as we've discovered today. Somebody who really brought the religious life into the pop arena in a very successful way, I think. And that use of what people might think of as a secular tool, pop music, in order to advance a religious message or even to create a religious community is a really fascinating aspect of what his outreach is about now. But you've recently met a choir that's made up of people who identify as fairly secular, but who sing religious music. Can you tell me about the Sweet Moaners? Yes, Meredith. Wonderful group of people, a Ballarat-based gospel and world music group. Now, I ran across them at the recent National Folk Festival in Canberra. I'm a a festival fan. I am a big fan of the National and not just for the headline acts because one of the joys of the National is its serendipity that happens with performances in the street. So, so how, did, how did you come across the Sweet Moaners then? Well, I was queuing for a coffee at a coffee cart and they just 
assembled spontaneously and started singing and my ears pricked up and my radar went off and I thought, hello, this is great because they were singing some classic gospel songs. And they did attract a really good audience, just passers-by. So I hung around and started to talk to some of the choir members, including the creative director, as it turned out, Stella Savvy. And I, I asked them, I said, look, you're singing some fairly devout songs here about Jesus and the power of faith, but are you yourselves devout? And they said, no, we're not particularly religious. We don't identify as such, but we still like singing gospel songs and we do believe in the power of gospel music. And I thought that was a very interesting statement. And fascinating too that that was a music they considered apt for the public sphere or for a captive audience in a, an ostensibly secular space. What was their thinking there? Well... You know, it reflects the wider truth that there's an emotional heft, an emotional power to the music that's partly born out of its history. It is music that has developed to bring a people through a great period of oppression. It's a music designed to empower and give people hope. And these are emotions I think anyone can feel, whether you're religious or not. You can find some solace or some power in that emotion. Uh, it doesn't depend on anything religious. So, Except perhaps a religious narrative or religious lyrics. Well, They're look, gospels. I wonder how much of the lyrical content also drives people's response. I think a lot of people respond a lot to the melodies and the power of the harmonies, particularly when you've got it being sung by 20 or 30 great singers. I mean, it brings another dimension to the whole package. So this is music that somehow speaks to secular people as much as it does to religious people. And I found that quite appealing and quite attractive. And so I wanted to talk to some of the choir members about that very fact. I also wanted to ask what is the role of a community choir, in this case a gospel and world music choir, what's the role of a community choir in Australia uh, where most of the audience is probably not very religious? And I think the answer that we'll hear is that they're in a space we might call the civil religious space, civil religion. That part of society where uh, the underlying values are expressed through civic events, public memorials, anniversaries, even, as we'll hear, hospital visits. These are events that people don't really take much notice of, and yet I think they're quite important to the sense of cohesion in a society. And so community choirs like the Sweet Moaners Choir, I think, actually play a very strong and important role in that space. So they're really rethinking the role of a community choir today. Well, let's hear from the Sweet Moaners now. I'm Stella Savvy. I'm the creative director of the Sweet Motors Choir. And I've been with the choir since the beginning, which is over 22 years now. I'm Beth Quinn. I'm a choir member. I sing in the alto section. I've been in the choir for over 10 years now. Gospel has this sort of incredibly uplifting, inspirational element to it that you don't really find in 
lots of other music. It's very unique in that way. And there's a few different sorts of styles of gospel and the sweet moaners particularly like to focus on the the sort of what's called the golden era of gospel, the quartet, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers and the Pilgrim Travellers, that sort of era of gospel. Rhythmically, it's so complicated and I guess just the raw energy that you find with that style of music. And it's interesting that within the gospel, a lot of the songs are actually about death. They're all quite morbid lyrically. However, musically, they're far from morbid. And so we try with our gospel stuff to find the stuff that is, you know, it's high energy and it's uplifting without it being, I guess, too preachy or, you know, intense kind of Christian lyrics, more sort of a broader inspirational kind of vibe. You know, for us, that that music style came out of Africa. So when you when you listen to traditional African music, all the harmonies are there. And often when you when you're listening to a lot of African music, same scenario, they'll be singing about something that's quite sad or quite morbid, but it's uplifting, it gets faster and it gets sharper and it gets more exciting as the song goes on. So gospel and, and that sort of roots based stuff really have, you know, a strong connection, but it's so much fun to sing. I guess it's accessible for people as a style and it being in English as well. We sing a lot of world music as well um, and we sing in something like, at the moment, I think about 15 different languages, but the gospel is that sort of universal kind of vibe musically, I guess. Moses, Moses, don't you let King Pharaoh Well, gospel songs are songs leading people out of oppression or helping people deal with oppression uh, at their heart, aren't they? So that is almost a universal feeling or message. When you're talking about the Southern Baptist gospel stuff, that came out of the slavery, out of the work songs, and you hear about the styles like the moan style. On our album, there's one, Moses. It's a very kind of mournful style and often comes out of the churches where the preacher is sort of preaching away and people are kind of humming and in harmony and and repeating what the preacher is saying. So that style is, I guess, a softer kind of style of gospel, but it's really relevant in terms of that's kind of the link from the cotton fields, from the direct slave into the church. And the church stuff, when they're singing they are genuinely wanting a better life. Mortal life is not so great. Yeah, Yeah, well, these are praise songs. I mean, you've got a a classic here like How I Got Over, which has been sung by so many of the great singers. Mm. One of the great gospel songs, which is about uh, getting beyond the, the world's cares. Yeah, and that song was used a lot in the black rights movement in the States in the 60s and 70s and um, still gets used, I guess, on that level, you know, overcoming the negative and trying to make a better better life for yourself or, or your family or whoever. But, yeah, that's a classic example. Beth, what's it like to sing these songs? Because it must take some great breath controls. You've got to hit some high notes. You just take very good care of who's surrounding you, Jeff. <laughs> So I feel I'm a master at surrounding myself with excellent singers. 
and uh, take their lead in when they're breathing and lead from their notes. And uh, it, it is absolutely uplifting and fabulous experience to be engulfed in the harmony and the rhythms of the Sweet Moaners Choir. Tell me more about the services or singing that you do for palliative care patients. So often at those events, we're singing a song which connects with the grief of the families and the staff who have worked so tirelessly over months in the palliative care unit. Often the gospel songs are a little too uplifting during the service and we may choose to sing a song of mourning or connecting with that like Tani Hina or Mahodimong. And then towards the end of the service, perhaps transition to one of one of the gospel songs at, at that sort of moment where it's more appropriate to be to be rising up from or transitioning from a place of grief. Yeah. What were those two songs you mentioned? We have Tani Hina and Mahodimong. Tani Hina is a song sung by the women of the Tokola Islands as they grieved for their sons and husbands being taken away on the slave ships. And Mahodi Mong, Stella, can you speak to that one? Yeah, so Mahodi Mong is talking about the sadness and the oppression due to South Africa's apartheid. It's in Zulu, that song. It's talking about trying to sort of be all together and, and work this out together and we may lose people along the way. Direct translations are sometimes hard with these songs. Now, I understand you sang one of these songs at a Christchurch memorial concert. So that was a part of a Harmony Festival that happens every year around Harmony Day on the 21st of March. There was lots of people having a minute's silence for the people of Christchurch and we were asked to sing the song Tangi Hina. Also a former member of the choir, Bob Micah, who is a Maori man, did a beautiful tribute and spoke in Maori and in English paying respect to the Wathaurong, who are the local Indigenous people, and all the people of New Zealand and all the people around the world. And he did this in such a beautiful way with Maori. And then we sang Tangihina with everyone standing in silence. And it was a really, really beautiful moment. And I think that when things like the Christchurch tragedy happen and people want to come together, they want to honour that somehow. And music is always a really powerful way to kind of bring people together and do something together. So being able to sing together or listen to music or or honour that sort of thing, I think is important to people. And I think it's always been that way. So even all the cultures around the world, there are songs that get sung for all sorts of ceremonies and events and, and for different reasons. And I think that choirs are a really great vehicle for that to to be able to facilitate that sort of community not necessarily mourning it could be a celebration but a community event that needs to be marked in some way and 
we get to do that often, which is a beautiful thing. But Tangihina was this year for Christchurch. Yeah, I think community choirs often get overlooked for the role that they play in civic bonding of communities, but it is actually a very important role. It's outside of the church, but it sort of does some of the same things that a church service might do. That's right. Particularly in the in the world that we're in today, there doesn't seem to be as much community ceremony as there once was, say, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. There's not as much families getting together and just singing and creating music. And that's also, I think, why community choirs and community drum groups and all of that sort of stuff is really important because I think it's actually allowing people to come together and play music and, and connect in a way that's unique. I heard you singing today at the National Folk Festival and you were doing a lot of the classic gospel songs, singing a lot of songs, of course, about Jesus because they're gospel songs, that's what they do. Mm. But I gather you're not particularly religious yourself. That's correct. I'm not religious in any way, actually. I'm a spiritual person, perhaps, but in my own way. But, I, you know, I can sing a Rolling Stones song and I don't drink alcohol, so I can sing a gospel song and not necessarily have to believe in God and Jesus and believe in the Bible to to give it the weight that it deserves and needs. And you know, and I respect all religions and and I think that um, songs are songs. And if you are respectful to the way that you're presenting them and you're staying true to the song, then what I believe or with, if I connect with those lyrics myself personally, that well, that's of no consequence, I think. So do you think that these songs, which are originally devotional, have a sort of message or power that goes beyond that original function, that they actually can cross over to a wider community, maybe a non-religious community, but still a community that hungers for some, some sort of uh, spiritual power? I think that with the gospel music in particular, the energy and the power and the harmonies speak for themselves. The lyrics, I mean, the lyrics are, I guess, up into the eye of the beholder. Like some people will, will, will cherish those lyrics about Jesus and the stories of the Bible and they will connect with that. Other people won't necessarily connect with the lyrics, but they will connect with the harmonies and the and the melodic things that are going on within each song. So I think music has that power. So regardless of the lyrical content, any style of music, if it, if you connect with it, you connect with you know the melody. But I think gospel in particular, because of its unique power, it does actually hook lots of people in. It's it's very infectious in that way. Back in the day like Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers and those those quartets, they were all singing in their churches, so they would be part of their community and then they formed these groups and they would tour. And that scene was, was bigger than the pop scene today. And, you know, Sam Cooke could make young girls faint when he sang. 
and ladies' faint too. Yeah, <laughs> you can make old ladies' faint. But that became a, a popular genre of music, big, very big. It inspired Elvis Presley. It inspired rock and roll. It inspired all of the all of the music that we love and listen to today, other than classical music and the sort of heavy metal, which they come from a different sort of place. All the modern pop songs now can can attribute their sound and their their modes, the Beatles, all that stuff to to gospel. A classic from the golden age of gospel, How I Got Over, famously sung by the Clara Ward singers Mahalia Jackson and Aretha Franklin, and in full voice there by the Sweet Mooners, one of Victoria's longest-running gospel and world music choirs. We heard the creative director, Stella Savvy, and choir member Beth Quinn speaking there with RN's Jeff Wood at the recent National Folk Festival in Canberra with songs from their album, Sweet Mona's Choir and Friends. Well, that's just about it for Soul Search today. Thanks to producers Mariam Shahab, Jeff Wood, Hong Jiang and Michelle Estevez and to sound engineer Hamish Camilleri. Quite a team effort putting the show together today. Next time on the program, we're channeling those summer vibes and heading to the beach. Hi, I'm Yusara, I'm from the Swim Sisters group and we're here at Bondi Beach on this beautiful Saturday morning. Swimming in the ocean is a very special experience. I've always loved the ocean, uh, I love, always loved the beach, but once I discovered ocean swimming, it was really about discovering this whole other dimension and I just had this sense of feeling like, oh wow, I thought I knew what, what the ocean was about, but boy, have I been missing out. Yusra Metwali, the founder of an ocean swimming club that includes several Muslim women exploring the spirituality of the sea. An RN summer highlight next time on Soul Search, and I hope you can join me. In the meantime, I'm Meredith Lake, and if you're celebrating Christmas, I wish you a very merry one. Right here on RN, your home of ideas. I can roll with you again. I've been waiting so long. I know I'll soon be You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.